You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So let's stand and as we read God's word, uh, we're going to read from uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 9 to 18, 9 to 18. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, your powerful word. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this body of believers. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us this morning, that I, that I would be able to just kind of um, stand to the side, Lord God, as you speak, but use me, I ask. And Lord God, would you give all of us teachable hearts this morning? Convict us, lift us up, save us, do what you need to do, Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So this is the second sermon in the book of James. Um, as we're jumping into James, and as you're opening your Bible to James, uh, it's Jesus' little brother. Um, and just so you know, they grew up in, in a blue-collar family. And, and I heard someone say, and it was actually pretty cool, uh, that in the New Testament, James is the blue-collar scholar. Pretty cool, right? I thought that was cute. <laughs> their dad was a, um, a construction worker, a, a carpenter. They most likely grew up working with their dad, uh, putting their boots on in the morning, grabbing their tools, going to work each morning. Uh, these are not guys who were raised in, in uh, West Bloomfield or, you know, Bloomfield Hills, more like people that grew up in Garden City. <laughs> uh, they were raised, or maybe Detroit, uh, they were raised by a blue-collar dad who went to work every single day. And so what James is talking about in this New Testament book, I think is super practical. And it's about, and this is kind of the overarching theme of James, and it's about how to take your faith, my faith, and put it to work in your life. That's a pretty huge thing, right? Pretty huge theme. If the theme for the book is how to apply your faith in different arenas in your life in a practical way, uh, especially when we go through trials, and we saw, that, we saw this last Sunday, the hook for the book, the hook for the book, I would say it's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, something that we looked at last Sunday. 
Count it all joy. I think that's the hook. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's what he says. Life has trials, and a lot of them. There are hard seasons, there are difficulties, obstacles, and these are opportunities, he says, for you and I to seek what? To seek joy. The guarantee here is that we're going to go through trials. But the question is, will joy come into your life? Will joy come into your heart to get you through the trial? Hmm. Now, if you can find joy in your trial, he says you'll, be, you'll have steadfastness through your trial, meaning you'll have faithfulness. That's what that means. You'll have trustworthiness. You'll have dependability. You'll have dedication. You'll have commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what he kind of means when he says steadfastness. Now, this week, the theme, the theme continues in chapter 1. James continues and says regarding trials that there's a specific kind of trial, and it comes to us in form of, we just read it, temptation. And it's temptation to sin against God. And he says in verse 14, we're going to just jump really quickly to point something out, and then we're going to go, we're going to take verse by verse. So he says in verse 14, each person is tempted, he says, when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Interesting. What he says is when there's a trial out there, when there's a trial around you, chances are there's more temptation in here, inside of you. Hmm. Interesting enough, what the brain scientists have found, and by the way, it's exactly what the Bible has been saying for quite a while, is that when there's increased trials out there around you, increased pressure, pain, difficulties, hardships, the reaction that that, that happens inside of you determines the kind of life you live, the kind of decision, decisions that you will make. Have you, you know, find that out in your own life, your own trials? And so when there's a trial out there, what begins to happen, it triggers anxiety in your mind, in your brain. And all of a sudden now, you know, you're dealing with a trial and your brain is trying to process a bunch of new information, a bunch of new data. And when that, uh, uh, and then what does happen, that increases the temptation in your body. So the trial around you triggers anxiety in the mind, anxiety in the brain, which can trigger a lot of temptation in the body, which affects you to make bad decisions under that stress and pressure of that trial. That's kind of his line of thinking. Now, the problem is we live in a time when we have perhaps an unprecedented complex number of trials that people are going through. We've seen that for the last at least couple of years. It's just really intense, and we touched a little bit on this um, last Sunday. And we even, yeah, we, we, we talked about, at least we just kind of, you know, uh, glanced at this. We, we have global problems and national problems now, uh, regional problems, local, personal, uh, relational, mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional problems. That is a lot of trials. So usually we have anxiety for decisions that we make for today, and we're all kind of like, 
Maybe you have a few that you're going through right now and you got to make a decision. You're asking God, God, give me wisdom to journey through this. You know, maybe, you know, you have a child that's, that's sick or, and you're kind of praying through making some decisions and right. But at the same time, we're trying to prepare for what's going to happen tomorrow as well. Oh, am I still going to have my job? And I, you know, if I make this decision, maybe I won't have my career anymore. And so we're kind of battling on two fronts, and there's a lot more anxiety because of that. Now, counselors tell us that there are four major categories that cause anxiety in our day and age. And, and, and these are the trials that can cause the greatest anxiety in the brain. You ready to kind of know them? I'm sure you can, can uh, guess them for sure. Health, safety, politics, and relationships. There you have it. Health, safety, politics, and relationships. Has anyone noticed that perhaps we had some health and safety problems in recent history on planet Earth, last couple of years, that were aggravated by some political conflicts that had some consequences on our relationships? We were able to combine all four in the last two years. Impressive, isn't it? Impressive. Good job, devil, <laughs> right? These four categories of trials that have caused and still caused the greatest turmoil and suffering on a, on a global plane hide here in the brain. And they bring the greatest stress and temptation to the body. And they have literally, uh, they have been a vice, a demonic stronghold that has been pressing on every human being for more than two and a half years now. That's where God's timeless word is timing. <laughs> and God is the only one that knows how we're hardwired because he created all of us. He knows how we best function. And so his word specifically speaks to us because what God wants to do is, is to have us change our mind, the way we think, the way we process, the way we respond to trials, and specifically to create new patterns, new neural pathways, so that you can get out of whatever loop you have been in. And maybe for some of us, this is maybe loops that we've been there for the entirety of our lives, because we don't know anything different. Are there trials in your life right now? Yeah, probably. Is your brain having anxiety? trying to process all the data to figure out what to do, what decisions to make, and sure. Are any of you seeing this manifest physically as well? Here's what you should be looking for if that's the case. Edginess, grumpiness, restlessness. Is that you? You fear a lot, just general unwellness, muscle aches, headaches, trouble sleeping. Is that you? May have to do a lot with the anxiety that you experience. And so what happens is you wake up in the morning and you just can't turn off what's happening in here in the mind. Because it races at a thousand miles an hour and emotionally you're a wreck. Additionally, your body starts to react too and you just can't control it. But you have to stay awake and alert because you have to live life, right? You have to go to uh, you know, provide, you got to go to your job, and, and you got kids, you got to, you know, bills to pay. So you're eating junk food now because you have to stay awake and alert. You're eating fast food, and then night 
time comes and you're so stressed and your body is so weak, now you need alcohol to deal with that. Now you need sleeping pills because nothing will work. Now you need some sort of a comfort because what your body is saying is we cannot handle all these trials anymore and the anxiety in here and, and it's costing us too much physically. We need some sort of a relief. We need some sort of a break. We need some sort of a something has to stop or give in. So what are some of the things that we do when there are trials out there and when there's anxiety in here and then physically our body wants a break and comfort? What do we do? What do we go to? Well, we try to find comfort in food. That's a big one. I think that's kind of my, my thing, my idol. It can be my idol or sex, or pornography, or alcohol, or addiction to legalized drugs, or illegal drugs. We binge watch on Netflix and, and Amazon Prime, surfing through social media, playing video games. This is what we call now America. <laughs> so what James is doing in our passage today, I think fascinating, he is connecting the trial out there with a the temptation in here. And what, and what he's going to do, he's going to speak to our mind and he's going to want to re-hardwire it so that we deal with information differently, so that we are less susceptible falling prey to our trials, to our tests. Now what James is going to tell us today is when there's more trials out there, there's more anxiety in here, and as a result there's more temptation in here, we've said that, and the temptation is to soothe ourselves or to seek some sort of a satisfaction, some sort of a, you know, in, in our stuff, and then to seek some sort of a satisfaction in our sin, right? These are the two, actually, the two categories that he will touch on. And the first category that he starts with is finding satisfaction in stuff. Is that how you deal with your stress? Is that how you deal with your anxiety, finding satisfaction in stuff? So here's the first point that we want to make. Joy is not found in your stuff. Joy it is, not, is not found in stuff. So, verses 9 to 11. We're going to, I think there's three sections, and we're going to read them again, and we're going to just kind of get to work. Uh, so, verses 9 and 11, let me just read them to us again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass... He will pass away, for the sun rises in it with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is comparing here two kinds of people that are going through trials. Both of these groups are going through trials, the rich and the poor. No one's, no one's exempt from trials, by the way. Just because you have more money, it eh, eh, doesn't mean they have less trials. Some would say, more money, more problems, right? And how they, they will use their stuff, the rich and the poor, to try to increase their satisfaction. We don't have that problem, right? We're pretty good at this, right? Kidding. We do have this problem. That's why we're going to talk about it. So let me just say this. When it comes to the rich and the poor, these categories are... are subjective globally and historically, aren't they? How many of you thought that you were poor until you went to visit Haiti or a third world country? And then you're like, ah, no, I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm fine, <laughs> right? If you go to the bathroom in your house, you're doing good. 
You're good. <laughs> you're not poor. If you can heat your house without chopping down a tree, you're good. You're doing good. If you can flip a switch in your house and turn on the lights, you are good. So the rich and the poor are sliding scales, and we need to keep reality in perspective. Amen? When it comes to trying to find satisfaction or joy or comfort or relief in our stuff, Christians sometimes deal with it uh, in two extremes. In two extremes. We have the poverty people. Sorry, let's, let's just say the prosperity. We have the prosperity people, and then we have the poverty theology people. These are two extremes that usually Christians uh, deal with when it comes to, you know, finding joy and comfort in their stuff. I mean, the pro prosperity people think, well, the more stuff I have, the more joy I'll have, the better life I'll live. It's this weird concept that God is a vending machine, and my faith will be like hitting one of the choices on the menu, and now God is forced to bless you with whatever you want, right? That is an error. That is not in the Bible. That's not how it works. On the other side, on the other side of the ditch, right, the poverty theology people say, well, you know what? Your joy is not found in your stuff, in more stuff, but less stuff. It's less. It's having less. Trust me. So give all your stuff away. Sell everything away. And all we're doing is making the same mistake, thinking that our joy is tied to our stuff. It's just the other side of the ditch. It's still a ditch. But here's the truth. You do not, have, you do not just have things. Things have you. And that's the problem. And as people are experiencing more trials, they are spending uh, more money to get more stuff, hoping that it increases their joy. And it simply does not. And I'm not saying it's bad to go shopping. I'm not saying it's bad to spend money. But I'm saying is what I'm saying is that stuff is not going to fix your trial. It's not going to reduce your anxiety. It will not change your character. It will not. And what James says here is that wealth and beauty, and they often go together, wealth and beauty, um, if they fade. <laughs> they just fade. It really doesn't matter how beautiful someone or something is, eventually it fades away. You can't take your wealth with you to heaven or hell, and eventually, no matter how beautiful you are, gravity wins every single time, right? It does. And so in addition, what happens is in our day, social media exists for one reason, for you to covet someone else's stuff. Hmm. Isn't that true? To then consume and to then purchase something for yourself. This is what we do. And the reason we do this, the reason we choose shopping, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, video games to comfort us, to, to get some sort of a relief, is this. In the front of our brain, there's a dopamine center. And if you hit that button, it's a temporary relief and pleasure. It feels good. And that's why we do it. There was a day, and if you wanted something, you actually had to work for it. Uh, let's say you wanted a house, you had to go look for land, you had to chop down some trees, make some wood, and it was a lot of hard work involved and time-consuming. Now you're just like, Siri, give me shoes. And she's already got your credit card. And then Amazon Prime sends a drone and drops it off in the front of your house, and you're like, yay. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. 
So what happens is we're making instantaneous decisions in our trials, thinking that purchasing things will bring us some sort of relief. And what this leads to is what the sociologists call conspicuous consumption. Now you buy stuff not because you need it, or you even like it, <laughs> but because other people are impressed by what you buy. This is why we have social media, again, to get people to covet and make decisions when they're in a trial. To get that little quick dopamine hit and they just feel good until they get the bill, right? And then they get their credit card statement, right? And they're in debt and now all of a sudden they've got a new trial of debt in addition to the trial that they spend money trying to deal with. It's a vicious cycle of trials. This is the world we live in. Does anyone think that this is a problem? Oh, yes. So we spend the money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. I'm sure you've heard that. I'll, I said it again <laughs> for the record. So all of that to say that what James is talking about here are the rich and the poor. He's talking about the godly poor. This is super important. He's talking about the godly poor, and then he's talking about the rich. Now, Bible commentators are kind of split 50-50, whether it's the godly or the ungodly rich, okay? But here's the problem. When it comes to our wealth, possessions, and finances, we tend to think culturally and not biblically. So we think in two categories, not four. We think in two categories and not four, and I want to show you the four biblical categories. And if you're younger and if you went to public school, and you need to pay careful attention because you've been lied and brainwashed when it comes to this. Okay, so here are the four categories that we see in the Bible. Godly poor, godly rich. Ungodly poor, ungodly rich. Four categories. Now what happens in our culture, the economic discussion politically is largely dominated by what? Marxism. Hmm. Now, Marxism is atheistic and godless. It is not biblical in any sense of the, of the word. It manifests itself in communism and socialism and other kinds of evil, evils that end with ism. And the, and the result is that you tend to see only two categories, not four, but two, the oppressor and the oppressed. So everything is in those categories now. You force everything in those two categories. I'll give you an example. So right now, if you're not vaccinated, you're probably an oppressor. At least you're considered an oppressor. If you're vaccinated, you're oppressed. Well, like, wow, okay, I didn't even know that. <laughs> Thanks. And the problem is that these categories keep getting applied every single day. The way it gets applied economically is that, oh, the rich are the oppressors and the poor are the oppressed. Therefore, in the name of justice... We vote for politicians who take from the rich, give to the poor, reallocate the wealth in the name of justice. This is the world we live in. Not biblical. Not biblical. But the reality is that there are four categories, not two, because that's what we see in the Bible. So I want us to think like God thinks, not like culture thinks, right? When it comes to, when it comes to our money, wealth, and possessions, there are four categories. And again, godly poor, godly rich, ungodly poor, ungodly rich. And the way you know someone is godly or ungodly, because that's what matters, it comes to their, you know, when it comes to their wealth, is the way they answer these two questions. How did you get your wealth? 
How'd you get it? And then, what are you doing with it? Did you get, did you really, you know, get blessed by God with it? Did, did God in, indeed bless you with it? Or did you get it in a sinful way, right? And are you being generous with it or just hoarding it for yourself so you can build your own personal kingdom, not caring for the poor, not caring for the marginalized and the needy? I'm not going to go through all these categories to explain them, but just know that the Bible has people in each of these four categories. But the point is this. This is the point, right? This is what I, what I think even, well, what I'm trying to say by this. God doesn't care as much if you're rich or poor. He does care much if you're godly or ungodly. I'll say that again. God does not really care if you're rich or poor because it comes from him. He allows that in your life, right? He does care much if you're godly and ungodly, and this ought to be our focus. What happens in our culture, we just look at the income. Oh, how much money do you make? Oh, yeah, oh, okay. God looks at the character. Men looks at the outside. God looks at what? The heart. And so when you're looking at your life and you are going through a lot of trials that produce a lot of anxiety in the mind, and therefore you are under pressure to make some, you, you, I think you are under pressure to make some of the worst financial decisions. And it's your character that is going to cause you uh, you know, to navigate through those decisions. It's either your ungodly or godly character that will help you journey through those, e either in a God-glorifying way, which is godly, or just a really, a way that really devastates and tears a path of destruction in your life, which is the ungodly way. And for others, when they're in a trial, their instinct is not to find joy in their stuff. And now we're going to move on to the next uh, passage, next section. But to find joy in their sin. Maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not, this is not your, you know, your vice. Man, I just love my house. I love my, my stuff, right? But no, but maybe you're trying to find joy in your sin. When there's more pressure that produces more anxiety, meaning there's more temptation to fall into sin, and this is where James is going to go, joy is not found in your sin. So first we looked at joy is not found in your stuff, then joy is not found in your sin. This is verses 12 to 15. Let me just read them again for us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, for, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Interesting passage. Again, James is saying that when you're under pressure, when there's a trial in your life, and your brain is dealing with a lot of anxiety, and it's trying to process information and new data, and, and you have to make decisions to keep you safe and control the future and protect everyone and everything you know that, that you hold dear, there's something in you. That is now more vulnerable to temptation. That's what he's saying. Let me just say this, friends. We're, we're still seeing the effects of the last two crazy years on planet Earth. Under pressure, people are drinking more. The stats are speaking, not me. People are eating more. People are spending more. People are online more. People are uh, just angrier. People are having more mental health problems. People are making more short-sighted decisions. More people are suicidal. The vice is squeezing, and as a result, the flesh is responding 
And what James is saying is this, when those temptations come and they will come, you're taking a test that you're either going to pass or you're going to fail. If you pass the test, he says, hey, you're steadfast. That's awesome. Meaning you're, you're faithful. Meaning you're committed. You're devoted to God. You're growing and glorifying God. That's what he means by steadfast. And at the same time, if you fail, he told us previously in you know, last week's passage, if you, if you fail the test and choose sin, you're unstable. You're not that committed to God. You're just unstable. Now, the good news is this. You've all, we've all failed our test, and God is gracious. He allows us to retake the test because there's a million of them. But what happens when we fail our test is we surrender to that sin. We reach the point where we're, we're like, man, the trial is so great. Anxiety is so high. I just need to hit that dopamine center. I need something. I, I, just, I can't cope with reality. I'll just, I just need to feel good for a minute. Just a minute. Just please, please, just a minute. I can't take it anymore. But see, that's where we get in trouble. And then what we do is, uh, James says in verse 13, we blame God because we say, well, well, God didn't come through. God tempted me. This was way too much for me. God tempted me. How many of us say that? Not, maybe not verbally. We don't verbalize it, but it's in the heart. Now, let me just say there are various ways to do this, to, to say God tempted me, right? And, and you'll hear people all the time say this, well, life is hard, man. I'm, I'm in a hard season. My parents died. My kids are sick. And I just feel like God kind of didn't come through, man. God kind of created the situation. He tempted me into this. So I have a right to do some things that he says no, because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Do you know how many people think like this? Wow. Do we? Do you? Do I? We see this happen all the way back in Genesis 3. Because this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. Eventually blaming God. Eventually blaming God. And the lie, the lie, my friend, is always this. God is not that good. And sin is not that bad. That's the lie. God is not that good. He's not, he is, and sin is not that bad. Take it. Taste it. It's not going to fully ruin your life. Nah, nah. God is not that good, and sin is not that bad. Because the serpent said, did God really say this? Does God really have your best interest? Does he? He's not that good. And here's the truth. Sin does two things. Well, maybe more, but in our context. It defies God. And it damages us. It defies God and it damages us. No one, no one under a trial, pressured by anxiety, who, who, who chooses sin, made their situation better. No one. No one. We've all done it, right? You're like, yeah, I felt the pressure of the trial. I was under anxiety. I needed that quick, that quick dopamine hit to feel a little bit better. So I just made a short-term decision for some sort of a pleasure of rebellion. And momentarily, yes, I got some phys physiological relief. But then the Holy Spirit convicted me. He showed up and convicted me. And the moral of the story is that in the end, it was very disappointing. And it didn't make my life any better. In fact, it just... Ruin my life even more. 
And people are making these kinds of decisions over and over and over and over. And they ask, why am I in this trial? Hmm. And once you get into the habit of choosing to fall for that sin, you're now creating a, a neural feedback loop in the brain to where every time that's your natural default now, unless you intentionally start a new process. And it's not that easy. What's amazing is that what James says here, and in regards to this, Paul uses the language of putting off and putting on. It's kind of the same thing. Putting off, you know, what, what Paul says, putting off the old self, the old ways. Putting off the sinful choices and ways, right, that we were kind of used to that got us into trouble. But it's not just enough to put off some stuff. we got to put on some stuff. And what he's referring to is putting on making godly decisions and choices. Putting on doing what's right in the sight of God. Putting on good habits. By the way, in regards to putting on, the brain scientists will say, this is where they say, it's creating new feedback loops. That's what they're referring to. It's creating new neural pathways. It's what the Bible calls literally the renewing of your mind. And this is only possible for the children of God. Did you know that? With the Spirit of God. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification. You take from one place and you put it into another, and then that place is empty now and broken. And, right? and life is just a vicious cycle again. This is only possible for the children of God by the help of the Holy Spirit. But let me ask a crucial question now. How do you actually pass your test and not fall into that temptation and sin? That, that tests you. We've, we've all got our tests, right? And again, we're talking specifically about the temptation test. The way you and I can pass the test when we are under pressure, when we are tempted, is two things. I want to mention two things when it comes to this. First, I want us to know, I want you to be reminded and you to know that it's not a sin to be tempted. It is not a sin to be tempted. This is, this is huge. You may not think it is, but it is. Because what happens is as soon as you're tempted, the enemy whispers in your ear, I can't believe you're thinking about that, man. You call yourself a Christian? I can't believe you're tempted by that. Are you kidding me? You've been a Christian for 20 years. I can't believe you like that stuff still. I can't believe you desire that. And you just feel immediately defeated. And you'll give in to sin because you're already defeated in your mind. Because that's where the battle goes, in your mind. Church, we need to know. We need to be reminded that this is not God talking to you and to us. God, that's the enemy talking to you. He's the accuser of the children of God, and he accuses us day and night, Revelation 12.10 says. Day and night. This is what he does for a living, and he's good at it because we fall into sin a lot because he gets us defeated at, at the mind level first. What the devil is doing in that moment, he's accusing us of sin and you haven't even done anything. You're just taking your test, but he's telling you that you've already failed. There's a difference between temptation and sin. That's what we're trying to say here. And for some of us, this is where you get so discouraged. I mean, you know, I already went on a date with her, right? And I guess I'm going to sleep with her anyways, you know. No, you really don't have to. You don't have to. <laughs> Actually, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like I've already run the intersection, so I might as well just proceed to walk in front of that truck. 
that you really like, no, you can actually pull back. It's totally fine. <laughs> There's no car coming, you know, so just pull back. We're good. But it, it's kind of like that. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. Ah, Jesus was tempted, yes, in every possible way. So Jesus was tempted, tested, he passed this test. So when you are tempted, that is not a sin. It's just a test. So you can pass if you say yes to the Lord and no to that sin. Now, how do you say no to that to the sin practically? Well, James has a word for us here, and it's the word desire. Desire. It's a powerful word. And this word desire can be used positively or negatively in the New Testament. We actually see it in both ways. Not to totally nerd out on you, but I think it's good, good information. Oftentimes when the word is used, it's used in the context of desires of the flesh, right, versus desires of the spirit. That's, that's the context that it's used in. Now, the flesh versus the spirit. So if you're in a trial, you're feeling the pressure. You have anxiety in the mind and the brain, right? You're, you're trying to collect information and make a plan, and you feel overwhelmed or fearful or scared, right? Your body is now, you know, more likely to make a foolish, sinful, short-sighted, short-term decision. Now, a desire rises up within you, and that is a, a temptation. And ultimately, James says, that's the test. That desire coming up, that's the test. And you're like, just give me that dopamine hit. It'll feel good for a, a, a minute, right? And, and, and that, my f that, my friend, is the desire of the flesh. Now, you, you've just acted on it, right? And if you don't know Jesus, all you have are the desires of the flesh. That's why non-Christians don't even understand Christians. They're like, man, why wouldn't you not do that? Why wouldn't you just sleep with her? Why wouldn't you just, you know, take this hit? Man, we're adults. We can do whatever we want, right? It's great. But we need to know and to be reminded that there is another way. It's the way of the Spirit. It's the way of the Spirit. And it says in Galatians that the flesh and the Spirit are against each other. They're mutually exclusive and that the flesh wants to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And if you're a Christian, what I'm going to say next is such amazing news for us, for Christians. Listen, did you know that you have the Holy Spirit that can help you with that? To, to live in the Spirit and not to live in the flesh and always fall into that, you know, sin. And we have a new nature now. We're a new creation. Yeah, we're not perfect. But we're new, and we're in the process of being perfected. And what we have now, you know, is that in Christ, we have what? New desires. Ah. New desires that the Holy Spirit creates in us. Did we even know that? It's not up to us to kind of conjure up like, oh, I'm going to love God now. I'm going to love God and I'm not going to say no to sin. No, the Holy Spirit does that in us. He creates new taste buds, new desires. In Peter, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, the Bible says, like a newborn baby, you crave the milk of God's word. I'm paraphrasing, you know, the, uh, it actually says, like newborn babies, you crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You don't have to give a baby a class on why they should eat milk. Drink milk. You don't. They, they're, when they're born, they just have this appetite for milk. And in the same way, when you're born again, you have this new appetite. 
You're like, I want to learn the Bible. Why wouldn't I? I just gave my life to Christ. I want to pray. I want to learn how to pray more. I used to do all these things that I was proud of, and now I'm ashamed of them. That's because you have changed. And your desires have changed too. So the way that you overcome a desire of the flesh when it rises up, right, is just replace it with the desire of the Spirit. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Just replace them because the desires of the Spirit are much stronger. That's if you allow the Holy Spirit to lead your life and to help you. That's a big, big if. That's why a sinning Christian is a miserable, miserable Christian. It's like, man, I did that again. I feel like crap. Excuse my French. I feel like horrible right now. Yeah, because you're a Christian. Because you were not intended to do that anymore. You have a new desire that just, just it rises within you that you've never had before. How many of you in meeting Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, your desires changed? Not all of a sudden, like, oh my goodness, now I don't feel like, in some cases, I've heard people that are like just completely transformed, but usually I, I haven't, that's not what I experienced from talking to others. But when, so ultimately, in a practical way, this is how you say no to sin, and this is how you pass the test. You have to start, this is, this is huge, this is big. If you go home with anything, go home with this, please. You have to start acknowledging these new desires, and you have to feed those desires. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. You're going to lose them. You talk to Christians, and in five years from, you know, when they gave their life to Jesus, like, I don't feel like I want to pray anymore. Well, do you read your Bible? No. Well, do you pray? No. Do you fellowship? Do you belong to a church? No. Well, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder, right? It's, to me, it's plain simple, you know. You have to feed those new appetites and desires now you have to nurture those desires to be able to create new neural pathways now new feedback loops new response patterns so that you're living in the spirit now and following the desires of the spirit not the flesh because following the desires of the flesh leads to what death but following the desires of the spirit leads to what life one leads to freedom, the spirit. One leads to destruction, not only of your life, but the life of all of those around you. So when you're taking your test and you're feeling the temptation pull you, you need to go to the Holy Spirit. In a practical way, let's just, just go, go to prayer. We need to go to God in prayer and ask for help. And by the way, this is not just a one-time prayer, but a consistent habit of going to the Lord for help so that he would help us with nurturing and cultivating these new desires that the Holy Spirit created in our hearts. It's also cultivating and helping these desires grow by being in God's word. Not just prayer, but being in God's word. Being in God's word. And then by being in fellowship with godly people that can encourage you and keep you accountable. Again, I'll say this. Don't you feel and sense a difference in your walk with the Lord when you've just kind of, you skipped a few, you know, days being in the, in the Word and prayer and it's been a few weeks and now you don't even want to go to church anymore, you're isolating yourself and all of a sudden, a matter of a few months, you're like, ah, am I even a Christian? Because those desires you don't feel anymore. Why? Oh, you're just overpowered by those sinful desires now. 
that you listen to on a daily basis. So next, James is going to use two different analogies to further help us in regards to taking our temptation test and specifically about our desires. And first, he gives us the analogy of what? Fishing. Fishing. And he uses the language of fishing in verse 14, and he says, our desires get us into trouble, our fleshly fallen sinful desires get us into trouble when we are lured into sin. That luring, that's the language of fishing. Now, the difference between a fish and us is this. A fish doesn't have a brain. Maybe some of us don't have a brain either, but... Ha, ha, ha. Christian joke or whatever. That's the best I could come up with on the spot. And so what happens is a fish sees the bait and pays no attention to the hook. He's like, oh, look at that. Boom. Ah! You know, like it's just no attention to the hook. God gave us a brain. And you need to know that the, the lure has a bait and a hook. And the bait looks interesting and beautiful and, and, and just and enticing. Obviously, that's what a temptation does. It just lures you in. It draws you in. It, it's got to look beautiful and presentable. But you need to pay careful attention not to overlook the hook. <laughs> right? Don't overlook the hook. And here's the deal. Different fish have different baits. Different people have different temptations. For you, maybe sex or money or food or comfort or gambling or some distraction, right, that you make an idol now of. It could be people-pleasing or fear of men. It could be financial security because you don't trust God, but you trust your job, right? We've all got our thing. Don't judge their thing. You've got your own thing. Their bait may be different than yours. You've got your thing. Listen, it's about helping one another see the bait, not pointing our, you know, our bait to each other. And this is, I think, the definition of accountability. Helping one another see the hook. Hey, dude, you haven't been to church in two weeks. What's going on? You okay? You good? Oh, I'm just watching a show. That's the hook, man. That's the hook. That's the hook. That's, I think foundationally a, a definition of accountability helping one another see the hook that gets you oh man and the lie that Satan tells us is that this is going to be enjoyable and it is before it kills you it is enjoyable it's amazing otherwise we wouldn't be drawn to it but it will kill you in time that's the point of sinful temptation. Sin is willing to give you a little bit of pleasure to bring you to a tremendous amount of pain and destruction. That's why James says in verse 16, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. The deception is that it's going to be okay, and it's not by any means. The second analogy is motherhood. And what James is doing here, he's using this language conceived and gives birth in the next verse, verse 15. What he's saying is this, in the same way that we give birth, we, 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 we birth life, we can birth death. This is how we can give birth to death. When we meet our temptation, you know, when you meet your temptation, when it right, that desire rises within you and you flirt with it, you know, you flirt with it and then you date it and then you sleep with it and it gets you pregnant. And then it's just a matter of time until you give birth to death. So should you flirt with your temptation? No. Should you date your temptation? Nope. Should you sleep with your temptation? No. All it's going to do is birth pain and death in your life. It's just a matter of time. So what should we do instead of flirting with temptation? Uh, we should take it on the street and put a bullet in its brain. I kid you not. Put to death the works of the flesh. That's what the Bible says. That's why you, you cannot entertain 
anything of, of, of any inkling of temptation, it will, it will start a process and it will lead you on the slippery slope onto death. So you got to create clear boundaries. Say, I don't flirt with it. I don't date it. I don't even want to entertain the idea because it's going to birth death and not life. And let me say this, when people are choosing to find joy in their stuff or choosing to find joy and satisfaction in their sin, what they're really longing for, but they just don't know it, they just don't know it, is actually God. They're looking for God. They're not looking for stuff. Either, I mean, it seems like they're looking for more stuff or less stuff or sin or a pleasure. They're not. They're actually, they don't even know it. They're looking, they're seeking God. And a blessing from God. And actually, James starts this section in verse 12 by saying, Blessed is the one who is steadfast under trial. Blessed are you if you're steadfast. Now, how many of you would like to be blessed? He's not talking about cars and money and having just opulent. That's not even, that's like the last thing on your list of blessing. No, 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 no. Being steadfast under trial, those are the people that actually God promises to put blessing on them. That's what, that's what he says. So let me say this, your blessing is not in your stuff, your blessing is not in your sin, your blessing is only in Christ, in Jesus. It's only through his spirit that lives in you. Now, when we hear and think of this concept of blessing, some people think, well, why does God bless them and not me? Let me say, God doesn't necessarily, okay, I want you to hear the whole sentence, not just the first part. God doesn't necessarily just bless people. He blesses a place. He blesses a position. And that place and position is under his word. And even James will tell us in the coming weeks, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you want to be blessed with amazing blessing, right, live in the place that God blesses, that is obedience to his word. That's what he's saying, right? And there are people who lived and who live in this place and are blessed and they, and they get sort of arrogant and they presume on the grace of God. And then they choose sin for a while. I've met many people like this. And they're like, why has the blessing stopped flowing? Like, huh, I just don't have peace anymore and joy. Like, what, what, what just happened? Because you've stopped obeying, that's why. Simple. In the same way that a good parent does not reward bad behavior, God cannot bless those who are in disobedience. If you want to do what's wrong, God's not going to help you. If you want to do what's right, God will help you. But let me just say this about blessing. Blessing doesn't always look like a blessing because oftentimes a blessing is wrapped in a trial. And I'm going to bring it full circle back. And it takes faith to see it. And it takes faith to believe that when you, are, you have the worst trial of your life out there, you can have the greatest joy in here. And that's a reality for us based on God's promise, but that is hard. Because our joy is not found in our stuff or our sin, but the Spirit of the Lord bears it in us. So joy doesn't come up from the world, it comes down from the Lord. Let's look at the concluding section really quickly for today. Joy comes from God. So joy is not, doesn't come from our stuff, joy is not in our sin, but joy comes from God. Verses 16 and 18. We're done in five minutes. Do not be deceived, he says, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I really, I really want you to pay attention to this. I want me to pay attention again to this. Let me say this. You're not a burden. You're a beloved. You're not a burden. 
your beloved. That's the Father's heart. That's, that's the Father's heart of God. That's, that's him. That's what he's saying to us today. Maybe this is for you. It's been pretty crazy lately with all my trials, and I've failed so many of my tests. I've given in into my temptation. I've made some horrible decisions. And in hearing this sermon, I feel convicted. Praise God for that. God says, you're my beloved. You're my beloved. I'm here to help. I'm here to put blessing on you, the one that counts. I'm here to put the spirit on you. I'm here to put joy in you. I'm here to put hope in you. This is the Father's heart of God. And I just want us to receive that and rest in that. Summit Church, I just want us to receive that and rest in that. You know why? Because this is the most essential thing that will keep you from falling into sin. Resting in the Lord. And knowing that you're loved. This is where we start. This is where we continue. This is where we end. You don't have to work for the love of God. Did you know that? You work from the love of God. God's love for you is not at the finish line, right? It's at the starting line. This is how we start, loved by God. It's not for those who earn it. It's for those who believe in Jesus because he's earned it for you. And we receive it and we live from it. You're not a burden. You are beloved. I want us to receive that. Let's read the next section from 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let me make this last point. The more trials that come up, the more gifts that come down. The more trials that come up, the more gifts that come down. This is a paradox of the Christian life. Let me just say this. I've been through trials in my life just like you have too. And what I found is that the more trials that come up in my life, the more the gifts from God come down to help us go through them, through these trials. And what happens is the gifts that come down, they pull me up so that I can endure the trials that I'm going through. The reason we're not seeing these gifts is that we're looking for completely different ones, money and cars and whatever. But the gifts that God gives, they give us life. They draw us near to him. They satisfy our weary souls. If you're not a Christian, again, if you're not a Christian, let me just say this. Jesus Christ is God, and he came down as a gift from the Father. And before you can deal with your problem or trial, you need to deal with your sin problem, and you need Jesus, your Savior. And Jesus Christ is the gift that God sent down to those of us who have sinned and failed our test. And, and that would be all of us at some point. But he changes us. God changes us that we don't have to fail the test all the time now. We have chosen our stuff. We have chosen our sin. And he comes down as our savior. If you've never received Jesus, that's why you're here today, I think, to hear this message and to do something about it. You are a sinner. He's a savior. You, you're, you're not going up to God. You're not making your way to God. God came down to you. His name is Jesus Christ. He passed all of his tests without sin. He died in your place for your sin. He rose for your forgiveness. He ascended into heaven. And right now, he's ruling and reigning with riches in his kingdom. And he's preparing a place for you if you will turn from sin and trust him. For those of us who are Christian, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent us his what? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift that, that came down from the Father to the believer. You don't have the strength you need to go through the trials. You just don't. But he does. 
You don't have the wisdom you need, but he does. You don't have the steadfastness you need, but he does. So work with him and don't grieve the Holy Spirit and don't quench the Holy Spirit. Let him lead you. Let him help you. We can't change what we're going through, but everything we're going through can be used of the Holy Spirit to change us. So again, let him do his work in you. Let him help you. Let him lead you. Let him walk alongside you. And let him give you the gifts that are necessary for you to pass the test and to bless your life. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.